Um, but no, for me, like, and this this kind of ties in with my overall philosophy on like where black people need to be here in America and in, in, in some of these bigger westernized cultures. We don't need a huge list of millionaires. We need a large body of middle class families who can pass on nice inheritance checks or, you know, can can pay for their kids' first deposit on their house, can pay for their kids' first car if they want to. What's going on, people? Welcome to 1000 Voices. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time listening to this. And if it's your first time here, welcome. This is the podcast where we're on a mission to interview 1,000 inspirational Black Britons. And today I'd like to welcome our amazing guest, Mr. Salesman Extraordinaire, <laughs> Mr. I could sell ice to an Eskimo <laughs> and then make you sign up to a recurring plan so you buying a new pack of ice every month. Mr. Richard Abiade himself, how are you doing today? Thank you, man? thank you. I'm very, very good. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Ever since you've taken it to a, a visual thing as well, I've been seeing this particular image on my Instagram and I'm like, wow, it'd be good to be there one day. And here we are. Here we are. Uh, thank you, no, man. but thanks for having me. You manifested it, man. Yeah. Like, no, thank you for coming on, man. I'm really, really happy, man, to have you on. And, you know, I've, I was saying I was saying to you before we come here, like, I'm looking forward to this. I feel like yeah. I'm just feeling my soul, man. Yeah, it should be, be good, man. Be, should be good. It's going to be a nice, nice little discussion. Man. And big up you, man. Like, what you're doing is amazing here. Like, oh, let me get that out before I forget. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you, man. Much appreciated. Yeah. So, yeah, man, uh, before we kick things off, for people who may not know who you are, if you just give us like a very brief introduction as to who you are, what you do. And also, in that introduction, tell us why you do what you do. Ooh, where do I start? So, yeah, my name is Richard Abiade, um, hailing from Southeast London original. Shout out everybody um, <laughs> from Camberwell um, and anywhere around. Um, I, I, look, I, I, I work in finance, I work in the financial space. I work for a big uh, multinational company uh, called Bloomberg. And, you know, I, I, you know, I wear a few hats in that space. Uh, my main role is, is, is sales to a, a specific uh, region of clients or a specific type of client, mainly the hedge funds. Uh, but I've had a, a slightly nice career, um, layered career at Bloomberg in the 15 years I was there. Um, I'm a semi-retired artist. I'm a, currently a semi-retired podcaster as well, but more on that later. Um, and the reason why I do the things I do is is a few things. If I'm talking about like work, um, I work to pay my bills. I work to support my, my family and those I love. Um, the work that I do as well as my day job on top of my day job, um, which I think we're going to touch upon with regards to, you know, what I'm doing to help um, the black community and young black people who are trying to make it in the world. I do that because I feel like it's a very important piece um, of the jigsaw. It's important to try and strive for personal success, but I think you are defined by who you are also able to bring along with you. Um, and I've always had that in the fore um, of my mind, but I needed to get to a position where I could help others. Um, so needless to say, I probably do that a great deal more than my actual day job. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Perfect, man. Thank you for that introduction. That was amazing. And yeah, man, so there's a lot that I want to talk about <laughs> you today, you know, like quite a bit that I want to talk about with you. And um, full disclaimer, so me and Richard, we work together. And like, there's and there's a lot of things I, prob I even want to ask on a bit more of a personal level that I haven't necessarily been able to ask you because, you know, there's only so much you can... <laughs> you, you haven't always got the time to sit yeah, down yeah, yeah. and chat for hours and hours at work, blah, blah, blah. So... 
some of it is a bit personal, mm. you know, personal type questions, but um, hopefully, um, I'm sure it's going to be things that everybody can benefit from anyways, man. So, big you up, man, for coming on and thank you thank once you. again. And also, actually, I don't know if you even said, I don't think you said it in the intro, I don't know, but then you co-head the BPC as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in terms of the other hats that I wear, I co-lead the black professional community. We call it the BPC at Bloomberg. So, essentially, all things to do with driving a strategy which helps to attract, retain and develop black talent um, sits with me um, and a group of people, um, including our wonderful uh, podcast host. Um, and we drive the strategy to ensure that when people enter into, you know, what is a large organization in a, in a larger industry, um, they have the tools, um, they can see a pathway, they can see success um, in a form that looks similar to, to them. And um, and yeah, I, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more, but we we are responsible for a great deal in terms of the black experience um, at what is a very, very large organisation. Nice one, thank you. All right, let's kick things off. Let's take it back yeah, to what it was like for you. Who was Richard back in Camberwell? <laughs> what was that? What was the environment like? What was the upbringing like? What was the family situation what was just paint a picture as to what your childhood was like yeah 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 so parents came over to london from nigeria in the early 80s so my dad met my mom um in nigeria they came over here he had like a slight detour in italy um and he was a journalist by trade they came over here um, like a lot of, you know, Nigerians, Africans, Caribbeans do. Um, it wasn't quite like the Windrush generation. It was obviously in the 80s, so it was, it was sometime after. But um, they came in the 80s. They had my sister, uh, who was a few years older than me. Then they had me. And then um, we had two younger brothers as well. Shout out Yemi and Pete. And it was crazy, right? Like it was, it, in many respects, it was a bit of both. See, we were used to seeing other families like us because I think... Camberwell, Peckham and, and surrounding areas were well known for housing a lot of immigrant um, African and Caribbean families. So we did see a lot of people and obviously church was a, a was a was a main sort of venue for seeing other families like ours. Um, but it was the 80s and the early 90s in London and the UK. So, yes, we had the community associated with people who were like us, but we also had the harsh contrast of like just over like racial abuse um so you know i was like you know seven years old my mom picked me up from school and the first time i heard the n-word was was when it was directed to her um shout out my mom though like she didn't take it like she had this big set of keys and she dashed it at the guy's head and i was just like <laughs> yeah that's, that's the fighter i'm always gonna be right like it wasn't this sort of like meek i'm gonna you know retrench to my household and cry about it my mom was like no 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 this is my country now too boss please um <laughs> So yeah, it was it was a contrast. Like it was, it was a good upbringing. My parents were together for for all of my upbringing until my mum, sorry, until my dad decided when I was about seventeen years old that he was done with London. So again, it was more it was it was it was racially uh, charged, um, and he just decided at that stage after dealing with it for nearly twenty years that he was done. He just wanted to be back home, and home to him was always Nigeria. So from seventeen years old, I I basically became man of the house, maybe even sixteen. Um, that's when life kind of changed, but overall, you know, like I, I credit my upbringing in, in, in Camberwell and my schooling in Peckham, um, to being integral to who I am today. Um, I think that's given me the, the most solid foundation. I learned a lot about myself. Um, we had to really, really suffer, um, at, at stages, 
uh, from my upbringing. So I've always sort of understood the value of things that are important in life and what's not important. Um, but yeah, no, generally speaking, I was a pretty happy, happy guy. I stay, I, you know, I like to play football a lot. I was very, very good at football. Um, no, I was good. I was good. I was good. I swear. I swear. Um, and you know, I like playing football manager at home. I wasn't really too much of a fussy kid. Um, my mum didn't really ever have to worry about me. I was traditional in a sense. I just got my grades and just tried to stay out of trouble. Actually, yeah, I love yeah. football. Yeah. Love football yeah, yeah, yeah. I got so addicted. I got addicted from. I was like from 1996. I got the first demo CD. And from then it was a rap man. Yeah, like hours my, and hours and hours. It was my cousin that put me on, man. Yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah. get this football manager game. I got it. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, I even yeah. had to delete it, man. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it could ruin you. Like if you're yeah. revising for exams and stuff, like, yeah. like let me just let me just play another game, and it's just like, and then it's like three o'clock in the morning. In the summer. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Done. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was it was I was a good kid, you know. I had um, loving family. My dad had to work really really hard. So I would say that like you know I was much I was a mummy's boy. I was much closer to my mum and then obviously my dad left so you know my, my relationship with my mum was was always stronger um but yeah no I was a, I was a happy kid in 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 most respects um yeah I think so you said you learned a lot about yourself as well that period yeah what did you learn about yourself I think I realized quite early how how strong I was um you know I, just now I obviously spoke about how happy I was um, as a child, but like, you know, it was a it was a crazy environment, like in South East London in the early 90s. And, you know, as I was reaching teenager age, you know, I was, as I said, like location wise, I was in between Peckham and in between, I went to school, which was close to like Lewisham and New Cross. And at that time it was like, the two gangs that were at odds oh, with each other. Like the, the ghetto boys. Yeah, yeah. the ghetto Peckham boys versus, yeah. you know, the YPBs, the Peckham yeah. boys and all that stuff. So you had to be, you had to keep your wits about you, but on the same side as well, like, you know, you had the obvious pressures of being, you know, a, a young African boy whose parents were like devout Christian who just put put education above absolutely everything. So I, I learned from a young age that education was the key to absolutely everything in life. I still have some, you know, debates with my, my, my mum about whether or not I could have actually gone on to become a professional footballer so she could have retired earlier. <laughs> um, but we learned that education was the key. Um, when my dad departed to, to sort of start an, a new career in Nigeria, um, as I said, I had to become the man of the house. So I realised how strong a person I was. I realised that life is about sacrifice and I realised that like, you know, I actually had to hustle to eat. Um, and that, that paints a, maybe a, a bit of a, a a grim picture, you know, but it was a single parent, single income household when my dad left. It wasn't like he was going to Nigeria and funneling money back. So I had to quite early understand that like, my mum didn't have as much money as the, you know, the, them two combined. So, cause I love my mum so much and I didn't want her to struggle. I was like, right, how can I make more money for myself if I want this new thing or if I want to have like, a, a new pair of kicks or whatever, always been a sneakerhead. Um, I, I need to go out and get it myself. So I did a whole bunch of things um, to try and make money. Um, one of them, <laughs> I had a really big music collection. So at the uh, at the advent of uh, CD-ROMs and DVD readers or CD uh, writers, the burners, you know, you can make when you copies. Burn, make your own. Yeah, I would, I would basically, I would copy albums for people and I'd sell them. For like cut for cut price, 
So I would print, I would use the, the, the college at the time, I was at college, I would use the printers at college so it would like look like the real thing and I'd sell them um, to make money. And I made a little bit of a name for myself in that respect, in both a positive way and a negative way, but that all contributes to the story of me just realizing quite early that if I was going to survive, I needed to be proactive in my survival, right? And it wasn't just gonna happen, um, so yeah. Nice. And if you're listening from any record label, I'm sure he was just joking. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. If you're listening from a record label, I probably owe you some money. <laughs> I apologize. We were poor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, what was the plan? What did you want to be that time when you were growing up? I wanted to be a footballer. Uh, as I said, I was really, really good. Um, you know, but look. They didn't want me to be a footballer. Our parents don't want us to be footballers, just doctor, lawyer, all of that stuff, right? It's my dad always used to talk to me about like this Brazilian footballer called Socrates who had the world um at his feet and then and then broke his ankle or had to end his career early. So he was just like education, education, education. Um but I wanted to be a footballer. Um, you know, I work in the financial world now. Did I see myself being in finance younger? No, absolutely not. Um even at the stage where I finished university. I was probably more interested in like doing like advertising or marketing, something that could allow me to to tap into just, you know, my, my creative side. I quite like the idea of like pitching, I quite like the idea of like talking to people, coming up with like marketing schemes and plans, et cetera. Finance wasn't necessarily my go-to. I don't know how many people really wanna be in finance for reasons other than just like the money. But like, I wasn't like going in there to be like a Wall Street trader anyway. So I wasn't ever really thinking about things in terms of money. I wanted to be a footballer, I wanted to do something creative, but life got real, <laughs> I hate you. you know? Um, and look, it's, it's, I, think, I think that's a realization that a lot of people come to. Um, you know, if you think about elite sports and if you think about like all these very, very attractive industries that people typically strive towards being on, it's usually like the top 1% that actually make it, you know? Like for every Rafael Nadal, there's like 100,000 or more who just, you know, were very good, it just didn't make it. So I always had that sort of like perspective and I was always quite like realistic about it. Um, I just wanted to ensure that no matter what, I could take a couple holidays, I could support my family. Um, and yeah, for me, like that was, that was the end goal. I've never really had these lofty ambitions to be a millionaire or anything like that. For me, it was just like, as long as we can all like chill out and not worry. Is that still the mindset now? 100%, yeah, 100%. Don't get me wrong, like, if somebody wants to throw a couple of M's at me, like, I'll, <laughs> I'll send you my PayPal. <laughs> but um, but no, for me, like, and this this kind of ties in with my overall philosophy on, like, where black people need to be here in America in in, in some of these bigger westernized cultures. We don't need um, a huge list of millionaires. We need a large body of middle-class families who can pass on nice inheritance uh, checks or, you know, can can pay for their kids' first deposit on their house, can pay for their kids' first car if they want to. I think we set ourselves up for a great deal of disappointment, depression, and we set unrealistic goals for ourselves when we, when we aspire to be multimillionaires. If that's the ambition, absolutely go for it. If that's what you want, fine, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sleep on that, but it, I, I still feel the same. Um, for me, life is made easier when you have obviously loads more money, but I've never really 
given my background, given when we were at our lowest, what that felt like and how we maneuvered through that. I've never really seen money as like the be all and end all to my life. Um, so the mindset is still the same. Um, but I need to finish that off the same way that I started this off. If you want to send me some millions, <laughs> yeah. I will accept. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah, no, I, I hate to say, I think it's sort of like practicing a level of contentment. Yeah. Well. It's like J. Cole says in Love Yours, shout out to J. Cole. Yeah. There's always going to be someone with a bigger this, a bigger that, someone mm. with something better. But yeah, until yeah. you learn to love yours and be can practice a level of content not saying don't strive but mm. practice a level of be and gratefulness as well yeah because you can look back like i'm sure a lot of people a lot of people if you haven't necessarily come to that place where you're you're you've, you know you're grateful you've got that level of contentment you might look at where you are now and be like rah like mm. i wish i had what they got i wish mm. i had this much money or this that this that mm. but if you compare where you are a lot of people anyway you compare to compare where you are now mm. to where you were Three years 100%. ago, four years ago, you'd be like, mate, 100%. you'd be over the It's what they always say, right? Like if if younger you then could see you right now, would they be happy? I mean, younger me would be over the moon. I'll be honest. Um, contentment is super, super happy. And again, as I say, like I apply this whole thing. Um, with, I use depression um, to, to describe it. Maybe that's an extreme word, but I find that like a lot of people are deeply unhappy because they because they set these lofty ambitions when it's like incremental steps right is is the key to it all right like you have to do the 100 to 1000 steps in succession regularly that lead you to potentially making a million as opposed to saying i just want to be a millionaire and this is how i'm going to do it right you have to be realistic and i apply that rule to like just like daily stuff, right? Like if I've got a massive to-do list, I try to chop that to-do list down to something that like is a bit more realistic. So instead of having 12 things to do in a day, I'll prioritize the top three things and get those top three things done so that I'm really happy with myself at the end of the day, as opposed to trying to do a bit of each of those 12 things, getting nothing done, completed really, and then just feeling like, you know, piece of shit at the end of it. So, you know, I, I think it's important that contentment is 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 found um, in ways that aren't necessarily linked to material things or money. Um, and I know we're in a cost of living crisis. I know the world is in a, in a crazy state right now. So people want that cushion of security that money gives them. But if you are in a position where you are paying your bills, you are able to take, you know, holidays, you are able to put some money away, then I think you're in a really good position um, and you should be happy. So if money isn't what motivates you, what motivates you now? Um, that's a really good question. What motivates me? Like, I've always been a I've always been a people person. I'm I've always been the person who likes to ensure that people are taken care of and people feel welcome. People feel at home. Um, I think since like a very young age, I understood a little bit more about how the world works, and I wanted to be instrumental in contributing to a slightly different world. I am not one of these people, again, and this is aligned with my philosophies on life, like I'm not one of these people who thought I was going to change the world on my own. Um, but very early on, I, I understood what it meant to just give people time, give people your ear, give people any resource that you potentially have um, to help them. Um, so I guess to answer your question shortly, like. I think what motivates me is just like seeing people around me do well, right? I, I take great satisfaction from ensuring that people have the best possible chances to to succeed. 
Um, I take great satisfaction from bestowing upon people things that I've learned, whether that was learned through, you know, tough times or learned through, you know, being successful. Um, I genuinely like seeing people win. So for me, that's, there's no, there's no greater feeling. Ah, that's, that's sick. I can definitely testify to that. Not personally, but I think in you, I think I do see that. Like, I do see you giving a lot of people a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. And then I'm the one telling you, man, <laughs> you gotta tell some people no, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta, it's, a, it's a big problem. You gotta, you gotta tell some people no so you can actually go and do your job as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, definitely, I, I definitely see that in you. And um, I can even tes testify to that personally. Yeah. Because I don't think there's ever been a time that I could think of that I've asked you for something or for a catch up when you said no, or even postponed to me. You've always kind of just said yes straight away. Yeah. Um, so no, definitely, man. That's, that's, um, yeah, saying no is difficult. It's, it's, uh, or difficult for me. Like saying no is very difficult. I don't know why. Um, it's something I need to work on because like setting boundaries is like, can be the difference between life and death. And that sounds extreme, but like, you know, it's the difference between like burnout and just like being fine. Like it can be if you don't set boundaries and you know, with giving people time comes a great deal of expectation and also like great deal of entitlement as well. You know, you give people some time and they assume that your time isn't as valuable as it is because you've given them time that first couple of times. Um, so yeah, you have to set boundaries. Um, but look, man, I'm still young. I'm still energetic and I listen to my body. So if I feel like it's too much, I will tell people, and this is like my little trade secret. I usually tell people, yeah, put something in my diary for a few weeks from now and they typically never do. And I'm like, <laughs> got out of that one. Yeah. Um, no, but um, yeah, no, look, it, it's, it's, it's important to me. You have to give people time. If you can give people nothing else, because I can't like hand out checks and, you know, like Oprah, you get a car, you get a car, right? Mm -hmm. So what you can do, and I think what a lot more people should do is just give people time. If it's 10 minutes, if it's 20 minutes, if it's an hour every month, like, what do you lose? Yeah, so with you doing everything you do, so you got your, your day job. Yeah. So running the, the London hedge fund business, essentially. Yeah. Um, which is a lof lofty job in of itself. Yeah. And then you've got the work you do with the black professional community. Yeah. Um, and then you've got your own creative endeavors and you've got a family mm. and all of that. And you've got the same 24 hours the rest of us have. Do you have some kind of a self-care routine that you, or something you do to, you know, like when, when shit's getting a lot, you can take a step back. And uh, there's a couple of things I do. Like I, I, I've never, so when I was playing football a lot, that was amazing for me. Like staying fit physically was amazing, right? Like that, that helped me a great deal. I was always, I always just had the right level of adrenaline. I always had the right level of, of energy. So it didn't really, didn't really matter to me too much. Like I didn't really see that as a problem or anything. Um, really alarming came of, of, of giving a great deal of my time to others. I think as I've sort of slowed down a little bit, yeah, I've got a family and all of that, right? Like time is a little bit more precious. Um, I have to ensure that I get as much sleep as I can. Um, I have to ensure that I do some form of activity. I've been doing this crazy plank and push-up challenge uh, all of 2022, um, which has seen me do a plank and push-ups every single day this year. Um, the planks, I've done a, it's basically, a, I don't know what the word is, it incrementally increased plank. So at the start of the year, I did like 46 seconds was my first plank of the year. I was trembling, like, <laughs> shit, I couldn't, I couldn't. Yeah. And I just said, I have, to, I have to increase the duration of my plank every single day. Um, so I've done a plank every single day and my plank time is like 
eight minutes 55 right wow. now so just things like that right and you know again it's it seems like a little bit but you can see what it does for your for your core you can see what it does for your body and that's quite nice i drink a lot of water i listen to a lot of positive music i i'm careful who i follow on social media i try to ensure that like the things that i'm ingesting are positive um i've taken a huge step back from political interest because it's just it's just a state isn't it right like i was never really politically inclined but brexit and all of that stuff was my gateway into politics um and then obviously brexit trump all of this stuff right like then just means that you're in it now like you're really and i'm, I'm like a member of a, of a political party and it's just like mm. i'm too in so i try to remove myself from things that sort of just like wear me down emotionally um and you know i just enjoy like a a nice fine japanese or scottish or american whiskey like when i'm winding down um so nothing out of the ordinary i just try my best to just like take care of myself um and yeah yeah, no trade secrets there. I just, I just, I just, as I say, I just listen to my body and I just make sure that when it's all said and done, I know when to switch off the phone. I know when to reply to that email tomorrow instead of like at midnight, you know, like just, just the basics. Yeah, but that is a trade secret in of itself, I think, because a lot of people don't know how to even look after themselves or take care of themselves. Yeah. And then over time, eventually they'll, you can get burnt out. I mean, well, yeah, you get burnt out or, you know, work your way up and become you know it just gets crazy but it gets mm -hmm. very on top of it yeah 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 a lot of people if you don't have some kind of a thing you need to do stuff for yourself yeah, yeah. Um, things that you enjoy for yourself yeah. so um i think uh, it is um important yeah i think our parents generation they they probably had it tougher in some respects because they didn't have as much information but i think like in some respects ignorance is bliss we are absolutely hammered by sensory overload and information overload, like every single minute of every single day, right? Like the other day I found myself like picking up my phone, going onto like Instagram and then like closing the Instagram app and then going back into my phone and automatically opening up Instagram again when I really wanted to just like check the time or check another app. Like muscle memory has us doing all of these crazy things which expose us to to more information um and sometimes we can be we can have too much information so it's we don't get enough credit the point i'm trying to make is i don't think our generation gets as much credit for how much we have to take in um but unfortunately that's unavoidable um so what we are in control of is is how much of it we 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 ingest yeah so we have to be proactive on that um you know those instagram pages can wait you know detox once in a while it's important yeah yeah no for sure i, I agree I've, I've gone through a few social media detoxes where i literally delete the app off my phone mm. so i cannot do that muscle memory yeah. thing when i open it up and just open up instagram yeah. i'm only on one i'm only on i, I only like ig like i, th I like ig because it's like visual and it's like it's a home of like artists and and sneakers um <laughs> but yeah no, i'm not on twitter twitter's just uh, i think where a lot of good ideas go to die and like, a lot of like vitriol and just it's just I, I open up to it and I just feel like sad because of what I see and just like this combative nature that that people have towards each other and it's just like yeah I'll stop out of that and obviously Facebook's for like 50 year olds and my mum shout out my mum they drove us off the pensioners drove us off <laughs> Facebook Facebook was the one back in the day but like now it's just yeah when my mum came off Facebook I had to oh, yeah no 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 yeah when your mum starts commenting on your pictures oh, and man. stuff and all of that it's like okay I love you mum but 
Yeah, I was still trying to look cool on here. Right, I remember uh, I was, like, swearing my statuses and that. Mum like, <laughs> used to sit, just she'll pull me up on it, start commenting on them. I remember making fun of one of my friends. One of my friends got like a mad but, um, Christmas present, I think he was. I made fun of him in my status. My mum commented some serious posts like, Tobin, you know, as parents, we try really hard. This stuff, thinking, ah. Oh. Then I deleted her comment. Then she commented again, oh, saying, no. why are you deleting my comment? I just deleted the whole status. I thought, wait, wait, man. I, can't, I had to move away from Facebook after that, man. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I, I try to I try to reduce the social media stuff. I'm only on one social platform actively. I have to have a Twitter account for my podcast and stuff. So I obviously have to go on that, but like, I'm not an active user. And let's, let's be honest, yeah. Elon Musk is about to make that place a hell of a lot worse. Mm. So yeah, All right. easy pass. Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, and let's talk a bit about your corporate career. Yeah? Mm. So when, uh, let's talk actually, how long was you joining Bloomberg? Was that your first role? Yeah. And what's the journey been like? Uh, has it generally been quite plain sailing, quite smooth for you? Or yeah. have you been through like some major challenges along the way you've had to yeah, overcome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So long story short, went to Imperial College, did apply business management as a undergrad. Um, was, I guess, just like, chilling out after I graduated or after I got my degree um, pre-graduation and just didn't really know what I wanted to do. As I said before, like advertising was a plan, but it was very difficult to get into. All of my friends wanted to be like investment bankers. I hated the idea of that. Again, I didn't really love finance back then. Uh, arguably still don't love it now. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, and then like one of my good friends was like, in bed with like headhunters like they were they were just on him like come join us like and he was talking to a lot of them and he was like yeah i think you'd be good at this so i interviewed for a few headhunters um and then my friends who is still at the company now um she got into bloomberg earlier and she had a couple of months before me and she was like you would love it here the culture's great like the building's amazing people are cool um so i put in an application speculatively and i remember just like walking through like shortage one afternoon and I got like a phone a phone call and my phone interview was just there and then like, hi, I'm such and such <laughs> yeah. from recruitment. Who are you? This is Richard, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, we're gonna talk to you about your career. Half an hour, 45 minute interview on the streets of Shoreditch. She's like, okay, we're gonna inter uh, invite you in for in-person. And then I had two in-persons in the space of like three days. And at the end of the second in-person, they offered me the job. And then I, so I start, and I explained this the other day, like I started, I, everything happened so quickly. I, I, and again, I was, I had no money, right? Like I, I think I wore like one of my dad's old suits. I was like, I was a bit taller than my dad. So like I had to find, you know, African dads that used to wear like oversized suits. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. thank God he's got an oversized suit. It's gonna fit me. Um, so like I picked up one of his uh, oversized suits. It was a gray number, picked up one of his tires. I went out and got a, a shirt, cheap as I could. And then all of a sudden, like September 17th, 2007, I'm like first day of Bloomberg. And I'm just like, what is this? Like, it's the most, and to paint a picture for people who don't know what the old office was like, it's like, you go in, it's dark, you got these elevators, you see the biggest fish tank you've ever seen in your life with some huge fish. It's this massive open plan pantry where all the food is just like, weirdly free like everybody's just like taking free stuff like i'm like can i take that and you're worried you obviously got like that black paranoia if you'll be the person you take something you'll eat it and then the alarm will go off like <laughs> but apparently everyone was like taking stuff for free i was paranoid didn't eat anything that first day because i was like they're gonna catch me um and then fast forward 15 years i'm still there to answer your question of course i've had like it'd be impossible for me to to have been there for that long without having had some crazy uh situations um and you know we're we're in a space now where like I think managers and 
colleagues probably will get away with very very little in terms of some of the controversial things that they might want to say and do in their mind back in the day it was a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a free-for-all um you could get away with saying things that were suggestive you could get away with being like overtly um inappropriate and you could get away with saying certain things to, to people to to sort of make them feel less than and i you know i had bad managers um or a bad manager and um he made my life quite difficult for a period of about 18 months um and it was personal it was just a personal thing um i definitely maybe had too much of an overlap in terms of like what I was doing in my personal life with regards to like my music and stuff in my professional world. But that's probably me criticizing myself at, in a harsh way. The reality is that I, I pretty much put a demarcation in between corporate and professional, but they just found, sorry, corporate and personal, but they just found out about the personal stuff and just like used it against me. So there were some times which were difficult. The obvious thing as well is that like, you know, from a diversity standpoint, there weren't many people who looked like me, like there, it was difficult. Um, but that didn't really, I'll be honest, that didn't really affect me as much then. It didn't really affect me as much then because I actually happened to speak to the few black guys there and they took me under their wing and that was cool. Um, but yeah, no, we had definitely had some tricky times um, in my early years. But one thing I will say, and I think a lot of organizations just forget this is that like, you're hiring people, men and women, like at 21, 22. Mm. So in many cases, they're becoming like adults mm -hmm. while they're maneuvering the corporate world. And those are two different things, by the way, like they, they overlap in some respects, but like becoming an adult, like becoming a, a, a proper well-oiled, well-drilled corporate person who understands corporate politics and all this, stuff, all this other stuff. And I don't think like young people get enough credit for how much they can change between the ages of 21 and 30 plus. Mm. And they're still being in some respects, depending on the culture of your organization, they're still being judged, you know, the same way they would if they were like 21, 22. Um, so I think that that is maybe what I suffered from. They saw me as this young energetic person who was kind of just like all over the place. Um, didn't seem as though he loved Bloomberg as much as he loved making UK rap. Um, and here I was saying, actually, I love both. So just leave me alone. Um, so it was, it's, I had trouble, I had troubles, but like, it, I think it'd be impossible for me to, to be at a company for, for that long or not. Mm. That's quite interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone explain it like that in the sense where you say young people changing so much between what, 21, 22 up until, up until 30. And it's so true. When I look back. Yeah. And you'll still be getting judged by reputations that will build when you're at your youngest, most immature. Which life, is unfair. Life gets real. Yeah. <laughs> when you're yeah. Left, you know, you've, you've left, maybe you might have, you've left your education, blah, blah, that kind of, you kind of step into the corporate world, the working mm. world for the first time. Life gets real. Yeah. Things can change a hell of a lot. And a mm. lot happens, man. Mm. I remember when I was in school, we had a teacher, Mr. Parvez. And when he came, he was like, I think he was one of the only teachers in the school that was very passionate about his job. He was, he was a geography teacher and he came in as like a deputy head as well. And he used to do these things like where he would be teaching geography and then go off on tangents and just talk about life. Like he would sit on the <laughs> edge of the table. My favorite type of teachers. Yeah, he'll sit on the edge of the table just tell us about life oh, proper. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one thing he said, yeah, was, because every you know, school, everyone's cheeky, everyone thinks they know it all, blah, 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 all that kind of thing. He was like, um, you guys think you know it all, but I'm telling you right now is the easiest part. You think that when you're gonna go to school, 
get your grades, go university, get a job, and then life is easy from then. He was like, nah, that's when life starts. Mm, 100%. <laughs> this, part is 100%. The, this part is easy, but life starts when you finish education, you get, your, you get your job, you jump into the working world. And it's so true. Then I was just thinking about that quote as you were talking there, because you go through a drastic change in life, and obviously you're going to grow and change and be molded mm. a hell of a lot. Mm. hell of a lot man mm. so um mm. no that's that's definitely very yeah and you know i just think that you have to apply that if you're in a position of like managing people you have to have that as part of your mindset you know in my team i've got people who are like quote unquote the gen z the problematic gen z who don't take anything seriously and they don't, they're entitled <sighs> no matter how many no matter how many different ways you want to like label them they are still young people who are trying to figure shit out um and you kind of have to give them a certain level of freedom to do that and it's going to come with mistakes and as long as those people are willing to you know take accountability for certain mistakes that they make it's fine it's okay for people to just be figuring stuff out um so i know we've kind of gone off on a tangent there but like yeah that's that's my view on that um and yeah shout out your teacher because he was not wrong man i'd, I'd do anything to be back in like gcsc geography <laughs> learning about like different rock types and stuff like yeah, i'll yeah, do anything yeah. to be back there i did write in geography i don't know how man. i got a b in geography i do not know how I I honest got, to god I I got a b as well. oh my god i don't know how i did it <laughs> yeah like oh uh, wow i remember my wife telling me like we were talking the other day we'd be playing this little game at home yeah trying to do, uh, guess what was it guess how many american states no write down as many american states as you can in x my time and then write down as many capital cities as you can blah, blah, blah. and i was beating her every time <laughs> and she was like because you got done geography i'm like yeah trust me that's not what we've done geography yeah, no. rock sediments and and literally river, that, i thought, I thought that. geography was going to be like actual geographies like <laughs> yeah. not like rocks and like lake types and stuff like yeah, that. yeah. Crazy. None, none of that stuff soil so. types and stuff <laughs> like yeah. that but, so with you, when you joined, when you first joined, yeah, mm. you had that difficult relationship with your manager at that point in time. How best would you say, how can someone navigate if they have difficult relationships at work, especially if you're early on in your career, what's the best way you feel to navigate that kind of thing? Oh, man, like, I got asked this question before and the, uh, I gave an answer and then I walked away from giving that answer and I was just like, you know what, like, I'm taking for granted and not everybody's like me. Um, the reason why I say that is the following. When I went through my situation, I'm talking it was the worst. I'm saying like, you find out five minutes before your appraisal conversation that you are ranked the lowest out of everybody in a year where you've hit your target and you're not gonna get a pay rise and they put you on like a performance plan, which is basically like prerequisite to like getting managed out of the company, right? So you find this all out in the space of like 15 minutes. Um, and you know, you've got to channel your emotion, you're emotional, you're angry, right? Oh, yeah, I'll keep it real. I was and angry right um and you've basically got you again you've got to be corporate right like you got to suppress the southeast londoner in you that wants to flip the table um and be very very corporate and take it on the chin and be constructive about it but the good thing is about me is i actually wanted to stay at bloomberg right i wanted to stay at the company because i really loved the company um and if i'm going to be cheeky i also knew i was going to outlast this manager so I had a long conversation with the people that I loved at the time. And, you know, we were all in agreement. I believed it in myself, but I needed to hear it from other people I, that that I could overcome this. If they've sent me things that I need to achieve to get off this plan and then I guess hit, hit reset on my Bloomberg career, I just got to make sure I smashed it. And that's basically what I did. Um, I know a lot of people, if they felt as aggrieved as I felt, would probably just be like, look, this isn't the company for me. I'm going to leave. Um, 
And that's not to be sniffed at. If you do not like the company because of what has transpired, you have every right to leave. There's loads of opportunities elsewhere. Like no one company is the be all and end all. But I actually wanted to stay. It gave me a nice balance for, again, as I said, the personal stuff that I was also doing at the time. I mean, look, I was like opening up for like Bruno Mars and then going to work the next day and acting like it was normal. Like it was, mm. it was crazy. Like, and, and there was no issues there. It felt great. I didn't feel like pressured. I didn't have to take my work home. It was fine. So I wanted to stay at the company. So I, I, I thugged it out. I, I really did just tough it out. And that would be my advice, right? If you have a desire to stay at the organization because what you know about the organization is positive and you see yourself being there, you have to constructively, you have to constructively fight through this sticky period. Now that means different things for different people. Um, in my case, I had to get through a number of objectives over the course of a couple of months. And then as soon as I got off that, I, I, I made a promise to myself that nobody was ever gonna catch me in a situation like that again. Never, never, ever, ever. I'm gonna make my own narrative. Um, to anybody else who is, dealing with a situation like that, yeah, the first question you have to ask yourself is do you see a future there? If you do, then you have to be, you have to, in some respects, even though you're in a, in a, in a, in a situation where I, w I would argue you're not in a position of power, given that you're, you know, you're being read the right act, so to speak, but, you know, hope, make sure that the company is accountable, making sure that they are helping you succeed and setting you up for success, even if this particular period is, is one that's potentially um, resulting in you potentially leaving the company. Make sure that they are accountable, make sure that you, you, you make notes, make sure your efforts are recorded, make sure that you are, you know, you're staying positive and you don't allow yourself to get even deeper into a lull because of what you feel to be an injustice. You will always have an opportunity to tell these MFs that it was an injustice, always. It may not be at the time where you want, but you'll always get an opportunity if you come through it. Um, and that 100% came true for me. Actually, and I see you casually dropped in the, the music side of things as well. Segway <laughs> <laughs> King. Just, 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 threw it, just threw it in there casually in the mid, midway through the sentence. Yeah, it was work-life balance was amazing. Work-life balance was amazing. Like I was in the financial world, but I was able to like clock in at a certain time, clock out at a certain time, and I didn't have to like, you know, do what traders and th those guys do where you're like entertaining. You've seen industry, like, you know, where they're yeah. entertaining brokers and they're entertaining clients and all this other stuff. I didn't have to do any of that. So that was nice. I liked what I was doing. Um, and at the time I was making music and doing a lot of shows and all this other stuff. So it was a perfect, it was a perfect arrangement. Yeah, a perfect now for sure. I will touch on the creativity side in a sec, but just staying on this corporate piece for now, yeah. And so you've navigated through the corporate world for a period of time now, and now you're in a position where you're managing a part of the business, essentially. What would you say, what skill set is important, especially for people who are maybe a bit earlier on in their career who are trying to navigate this corporate world and be as successful as they can be? What kind of a skill set do you feel is important? So it depends on 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 the state of play. And what I mean by that is if you work at a, a, a big organization, obviously it's, it's slightly different because the bigger the organization, the likelihood the politics are going to be slightly different. Um, but one thing remains true. I think if you are coming into the corporate world, you you fundamentally have to be brave, right? You have to be brave with, you know, if you're in a client facing role, you have to be brave with clients. But you also, from an internal perspective, have to be brave with building networks, right? In most occupations, your network is going to be 
very much instrumental in your success or your failure. Um, so being brave, like my favorite phrase or the sort of mantra that I live by is like, do something every day that scares you, right? Whether it's that conversation you've been putting off, it can be small. Again, I, I, I harken back to what I was saying before, like these things don't have to be grand. Nothing you ever want to achieve has to be these big things. So similarly, do something every day which scares you. Have that awkward conversation, send that awkward email, um, do that nine minute plank, like whatever it is, right? like do something which scares you every single day. And I, I think you should apply that same thing to like meeting people in the, organize, in the organizations that you work in because your network does become your net worth, so to speak, in a corporate sense. So being brave is the number one thing. Being open is another thing, right? Like you go into a completely different culture and I think the, the sort of natural bodily reaction or mental reaction is to try and 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 find things which are are very very familiar people who are familiar and if you don't find that quite quickly you automatically think you and this unknown entity are never going to have anything in common when in reality this is just like traveling to a a country you've never been to before in a culture that's completely alien to yours if you go there with an open mind, you can often find that nothing is really ever as bad as it seems. Now, there are some awful companies with awful cultures, but speaking from my personal experience, I happen to work for a company which has a fucking phenomenal culture in many respects, like, you know, like everything down to like the name badge is being big. So you can speak to people by their first name and meet people and send people messages and stuff. So, you know, I, I am aware of the fact that not every organization is like that, but I do think that where there is inconsistencies between organizations and inconsistencies between people, you can remain the constant and you should remain the constant. And again, going back to what I say about taking control of what you can control, being open to people's different experiences, speaking to people from different walks of life has always been the lifeblood of, of, of you know, having a wholesome, well-rounded um, life. And that should apply to the corporate world as well, no matter how alien it seems. Um, because the reality is that if you are black and working in the financial sector or you're working in, I mean, any sector in the UK, right? Like chances are you're probably going to be in the minority. So we can't, you can't keep jumping from place to place to place, hoping that you will one day become the, ma the majority because it's likely not going to happen in certain cultures in certain countries, unless you go to Nigeria, unless you go to Ghana or whatever, right? So being open is, is another thing I would say. Um, and then fundamentally as well, just like working hard. And I need to be very, very clear. I'm trying to work towards a world where we don't have to work harder, right? But for sure, we need to work hard um, because it's always been about performance when it comes to business, right? Like, and we need to, to ensure that when they're doing the appraisals and they're cutting up the checks and all this other stuff that we are making the best account of ourselves um, and we are feeding into an ecosystem of this big body of middle class to upper class black families that I hope for in this utopia that's in my mind. Is that what you're alluding to when you say you're, you're working towards a world where you don't have to work harder? Like, what do you mean by that? Exactly? What I mean is that like everybody, everybody who's black is always has to work doubly hard for everything, right? And I think that's because it's not as commonplace to see certain groups or certain types of people in, in the corporate world. Um, there's loads of statistics about how difficult it is to get a job if your name is a certain way on a CV and you, you, know, you hear about pe being overlooked for positions. I saw an article the other day in the news about like, you know, 
I don't like the the grouping, uh, like mm-hmm. BAME people being paid as a ridiculous percentage less than like their white counterparts. So this idea that we're basically either working the same and you're getting paid more, or I'm working doubly hard and I'm still getting paid less is ultimately what I'm trying to reverse. We reverse that by making us more of a norm in the workplace and making it such that stories like Tevin's, stories like Richard's are not as like uncommon. So they get comfortable with being led by black people, black women, white women, Asian women, right? Like these marginalized groups historically have to become more commonplace so that conversations can be driven about how we make the, the playing ground level. Um, so it amounts to us not having to work doubly hard to get, I guess, 25% less pay. So that's what I mean by that. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm a, ma- I'm a massive, massive believer that until everybody's good, then none of us are good. Until 100%. Every single group, every whatever marginalized group and whatever issue they have, because you've got different marginalized groups that have their own issues and then intersectionality and all that kind of thing. But... You know, I'm a massive believer that we've all got to be good, man. Yeah. Um, before, and in that way, society is good. That way, everybody's good. Otherwise, no one's good. Um, and I love diversity and people mm. and background. It talks mm. people about their backgrounds. And I, similarly to you, I want to be in a position where, in a world, in a culture where I can talk about me and my background and be proud and not feel any certain type of way that mm. someone's going to look, oh, the black guy, mm. or this or that. Mm. But no, like, I should be able to talk about who I am, where mm. I come from, proud. Yeah. Same way someone that's from another whatever group and they can talk about them and their experience and be mm. proud about it. Mm. Um, and I'm a massive believer in that as well. Um, so I do definitely... Big time. And there are a hundred different ways you can do it. Like one of the things I do like, at Bloomberg is like <clears throat> a gateway to a culture for a lot of people is food. So one of the things I was like is like, yeah, I'm looking around this pantry and you guys are doing like a great deal of work, like recruiting a lot of people from like Nigeria and whatever. But when they get here, like, you know, if they want to stay here, like you kind of need to make this place a little bit more all encompassing. Right. So, you know, I hooked up, you know, my organization with independent food, like makers, providers, like snack makers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and got them to partner with them. So, you know, getting certain snacks in our pantry and stuff, like so people feel like a little bit more at home when they're in the office somewhere they spend 10 to 11 hours a day um, is, is, is quite crucial, right? We can't continually expect, and this is just like me appealing to like people's human nature, like I think we can't expect a lot of people, especially after a couple of years after George Floyd now, to continually have this... You know, we need to help black people, we need to help black people. We actually have to find smarter ways to get other people who are not black or who are not women or not from the Asian community to engage. And that manifests itself in loads of different ways. And I've got all of these plans and all of these visions which I'm trying to present to corporations, not just mine. You know, I speak to a lot of other organizations as well um, to show them that there's more than just one way to, to cultivate an environment. There's more than one way to 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 attract and keep uh, a diverse workforce in a place um it could be like the it could be like the 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 hair extensions that you put on like hair dryers in in office gyms you know making sure that they are uh they are they appeal to and can 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 be used on different types of hair it's little things that we can really do uh, that companies really need to keep an eye on um to keep people happy and you know my, one of my jobs in the BBC is to continually funnel that information, be a voice, right? Be a, a, a bridge between, you know, the changing face of people's needs and what companies can and are willing to do. 
Um, and it's a challenge, but yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, food definitely brings people together. Mm. I remember when we had the chin chin, and then people like there was a, a manager. She's a white woman, and she was coming up to you. She was loving it, mm. and it asked start asking me questions about my background. Mm. <laughs> yeah, she makes me so happy, and just like that, you can have a conversation. You know, like just like that, you can have a conversation about culture, and it's just like. That is the evolution of the conversation. I think a lot of people understand that there's a great deal wrong um, in the world. Um, but unfortunately, like, you know, we always tell people, go and read a book, uh, learn the history. Like, are they really going to do that? Nine times out of 10, not everyone's going to do that really, right? Like, not many people read books, you know, like, generally speaking, like, we have to find other ways. Um, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. My gateway as a black man into other people's culture has often been by traveling to their country, eating their food, speaking to them. Now I've been to so many countries, I could probably, I mean, I was speaking to my friends in a chat today about Swedish culture because of how long I spent there. You know, like this is how we learn about other people. This is how we can then learn to defend people and be allies of people because in the chat and the reason why i said this because in the chat like there's certain things that are being said about sweden and the, the racism there and the immigration and i was just like actually if we look at it from this perspective having been there having swedish friends and so on and so forth i took on just by default an allyship role for the swedish community <laughs> like and that's how it works in practice you have to find gateways into culture so that i can understand more about you i can learn about your story i can learn about your family story i can learn about your journey to london or wherever it is so that in a room where your honor is to be defended, I can defend your honor. You know, it's like, it's like in the education piece because you know when oftentimes when we talk about race and racial issues, people say that the solution is to educate yourself first and foremost. Mm. And like you're saying, a lot, not a lot of people are going to necessarily going to proactively go out and mm. watch a video or read a book or nothing like that. Mm. But then, if you've got first of all by default, if you're in a diverse community. You get to talk to a bit. Yeah. More. You experience a lot more. You get to talk to these more people from different communities. You realize, right? Mm. Oh, they're, they're not everybody's. They're not all like that. Oh, yeah. no, they're, they're pretty decent. They're cool people. Yeah. They're all right. Yeah. The food thing. I think that's quite cool when you put it like that. It's an easy segue into having some conversation. Yeah. Then over time, you're educating. You're learning more about them, their culture. There you go. This that. This that. And I think through doing a lot of this, a hell of a lot more. That's how we can. In, we can work to just towards reducing prejudices. This is I'm saying the word wrong. Prejudice. You said it right. You, know you said it right twice. You know <laughs> it sounds like a tongue twister. Yeah. yeah. How we can re re work towards reducing that kind of thing, reducing racism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's through that education piece. But maybe finding smarter ways to to for people to to engage with other cultures, mm. like maybe a food piece or yeah. traveling more, just work yeah, yeah, yeah. more diverse cultures and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you spoke a bit about what, the work you do with the black professional community as well, yeah. With that, so what? How did you? How did you even get into that role? Was it something that you got? Why I asked that actually, first of all, why I segue into that is because there's a lot of uh, black historical leaders. I can think of primarily U.S. ones, anyways. I can't think because you know we don't learn too much about black British history, mm -hmm. um, which is another issue I think. But um, a lot of um, historical leaders who have gone into positions, come into positions of influence, but oftentimes it's been hasn't necessarily been something they've actively worked towards it just kind of happened they've been doing work and then over time next thing you know they're leading up some kind of a movement they didn't mm. ask for it. it just kind of happened and i wonder whether that's been the same sort of because obviously it's an area on top of you're passionate about but mm. is it similar thing that's to what's happened with you and um yeah is that how did you get into it is it yeah talk about that Look, I, I was in the committee for a while. So it was, you know, I was always at the table with regards to what the strategy needed to be. Um, 
I just think at the time where they needed a replacement, I maybe stuck out as a potential natural successor to the job. Um, and yeah, I didn't see it coming. I'll be honest. I was hugely, hugely honored to be recommended for it. But, you know, I had a, about, probably about 30 minutes to, to pat myself on the back before I was like, all right, cool. What do we need to do to make an impact? Because I knew it was a two year gig um, and then I'd be replaced as well. I mean, I p could potentially extend it, but it's a two year gig in practice. Um, so I didn't have a great deal of time to like, sort of like pat myself on the back. It was strategy. It was like, what can we do? And don't forget it happens months after George Floyd, right? So never before as a corporation had their ears and eyes more open to the needs of the needs for change. Um, so in many respects, you could argue it happened at the right time, even if it was an unfortunate event, which caused us to, to reach that conclusion. Um, but again, it was completely aligned with who I am as a person. I knew that by given, by being given that role, I could bring a whole bunch of people with great ideas to the table and give them exposure. Being at the company for what at the time, 13 and a half, 14 years at the time meant that my network was super, super strong. And I automatically knew the people presently and in the future who could drive this forward. Um, so I just got to, I just got to work. I just got to work straight away. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. You know what? We're running out of time. Crazy. My goodness. You know what? Yeah, I've got, if you see the notes I got on my iPad here, man, I haven't even touched all wow. of the stuff I wanted to get into. <laughs> And, oh man, there's some maybe we can do it. Maybe we could do a part two virtual we, or something, or a part two we, another time. We might have to do a part yeah, two yeah, yeah, sometime. For sure, for sure. Um, but last, last one quickly. Uh, as we're wrapping up, what's next for you in your life? What, yeah, what does the next chapter for you look like? Look, I think what I'm trying to achieve. Um, I mean, I think a lot of my friends think I'm trying to like vie for like a role in politics. Like, I'm really not. Um, what I'm really trying to achieve is a continued expansion of the efforts at work in the BPC. I very much am becoming a little bit more comfortable with being a quote unquote brand amongst myself. Um, I am realizing that people are coming to me outside of the capacity of my work as being somewhat of a thought leader and trying to collaborate with me on, on all different ways that we can help, whether it be organizations, charities, schools, and so on and so forth. So whatever this, 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 I guess this, I don't know what you want to call it. It's not really a vocation, is it? Whatever this, this thing is that I am, that I'm embarking on, which essentially has, you know, the betterment of my people at the heart of it. I'm just embracing Right, like I don't know what's going to come next from a perspective of continually trying to expand my horizons with regards to the black story in the UK. But all I know is I'm all in and I'm open to it. Right, and it's going to take on various different, different tasks, and I'm open to that. In terms of corporate, right, like look, you know, I want to continually put food on table. I want to continually take my annual trip to Portugal and mm -hmm. and 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 not have to and not have to suffer. Um, so, you know, progression is obviously something that is important to me, or at least seeing that trajectory in front of me. Um, but look, man, I I am, I remain a very simple, a simple guy. Um, I, I just work extremely hard and I, and I, and I, and I try to, I, I try to be as much as I can um, in a short amount of time that we have here. And I know that sounds, grim to say but life is short so while you're here like you you do have to make an impact i'm i'm firmly 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 
uh, a believer of that. And that's that's literally what I've been trying to do all of my life. So that's what's going to continue. That's it, man. I told you it was going to be good. <laughs> this has been good. Salty, I man. can't believe how fast that's gone. It feels like crazy. we've been talking for like half hour. No. Like, crazy. Flown by, man. Like, yeah, it's you might crazy. have to do a part two or yeah, something. Yeah, no, no, I'm down, I'm down. Man, but yeah, thank you for coming. No, thank you, man. Time, and look, like, this is, uh, I mean, I don't know if uh, if you hear this enough, but what you're doing with 1000 Voices is amazing. You know, I'm the biggest fan. Um, and, you know, this is going to get bigger and better. You should be very, very proud of yourself. Um, I'm very, very honored to know you. Um, you've made a, a lasting impression on me and a lot of people. Who, who we share as mutuals. Um, so keep doing what you're doing. Ah, much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Big love, man. Thank, yeah, 100%. thank you so much, man. Much appreciated. 100%. Yeah, man. As, as we're wrapping up, have you got anything you want to say in closing? And if people want to follow you on your one social platform, how <laughs> 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 can they do so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, Richard Abiade, if you want to holler at me on LinkedIn, I'm there. If you want to, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's usually just like random stuff pictures of my holidays, trainers, whatever. Like, it's just an outlet for my creative side, right? Like, it's nothing crazy. It's not get, too professional. You touch something crazy. Well, yeah, know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe part two. But like, yeah, no, I'm on I'm on Instagram, Abiade, my last name. Um, and in terms of what I want to say, like, as I said, like, it's important that we nobody listens to this and perceives me as being um, a standout. There are loads and loads of people who are doing similar work to me, better work than me, um, who are the true, true inspirations and role models. Um, if I'm mentioned in the same breath as them, then I guess I've done a, a half a decent job. But I just want to shout out to anybody who is who is working hard, um, both in their professional world um, and in the additional work that this actually really is. When we think about it, a lot of us aren't getting paid to do this stuff. We do this because we care. So all the people who are doing this stuff uh, of their own volition, um, and the allies who really, really care about what we're trying to do. Um, shout out you guys as well. Um, we got a long way to go, but we are, uh, we're making small baby steps. Nice, man. Thank you very much, man. So thank you once again for yeah. the podcast. Thank you. It, man. Loved having you on here, man. And thank you. Million gems. Thank you. Gems, thank you. Man. Thank so, you. Thank you, man. Appreciate um, it. And yeah, man, if you're listening in, if you haven't left us a review rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on, please do. It really makes a massive difference in trying to expand our reach and then helps us with getting more guests onto the platform and amplifying the voices of all these amazing people we get on the podcast. So please do leave us a rating, a review, subscribe, like, follow. All everything. of it. Hit subscribe. All of it. All of it. Share, <laughs> do whatever you can. It really, really does help, man. Like We're trying to interview 1,000 inspirational people and it helps a hell of a lot. So please do people man um that's that for now so thank you for tuning thank you for tuning in this is 1000 voices we had richard aviade on a podcast and for now we're out thank you thank you cool